welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, where we will discuss high yield concepts for students on their anesthesia rotation. I am your host, Scott, the fourth year medical student. Hey guys, I am super excited to bring you this particular episode on mechanical ventilation because this is something that I promised you a few months back, and I believe it was October when I released the uh, respiratory physiology episode. So it is finally here, and I am pretty satisfied in how I'm going to talk about it for you today. Like, finally, I found a way to make it make sense. Uh, so hopefully, it helps you out. And I try to cater this to be also board relevant as well. So you're taking exams, you'll understand some concepts that would generally come up on like question banks or the exams themselves. So yes, hopefully this is uh, super high yield for you and will and hopefully it uh, helps you out. So I'm going to do this episode a little bit different than the way I usually do. So in the beginning, I'm going to, instead of just giving you an outline, I'm going to talk about learning objectives for to this episode. And at the end of the episode, I'm going to do a review. So going to ask you questions and then you think about it and then you're going to answer it. So hopefully it helps you test your knowledge and helps you retain it a little bit better if you're able to answer the questions at the end of the episode. So hopefully it's a good measure of if you got anything out of this episode or not. With that said, let's talk about the learning objectives for today. So first we're going to have you explain the four parameters of the mechanical ventilation, and you're going to understand how to read the ventilation monitor curves, so for example, the flow, pressure, volume curves, and you're going to be able to explain peak and plateau pressure, and be able to create a differential based on the pathology associated with these measures, you're going to know the difference between volume control and pressure control, and you're going to be able to state the pros and cons to a assist control and SIMV. Then you're going to be able to explain how pressure support works. And lastly, you're going to be able to confidently list the parameters and criteria for extubation. So yeah, those are the learning objectives. And before I begin, I'm going to give a shout out to a few sources that I use to kind of compile the, the content for this episode. So there's a YouTube channel called MedCram that he made some really good episodes on mechanical ventilation. And he also has awesome sources or awesome videos for other topics in medicine. So it's like a Khan Academy sort of style of presenting the information and is very fantastic. And I highly recommend that. And I also use the lecture slides from Dr. Manoj Dalmia of Harvard Anesthesia, who went over the different types of mechanical ventilation settings and whatnot. So that was also a very helpful source. So I included the the links to those in the show notes. And I also found a quick ventilator reference that you can use. I thought it was really cool. I found it on accident, but uh, yeah, so I, I included it in the show notes in case you would like to take a look at it. Okay, with all that said, let's go ahead and get started. Okay, so the first topic we're going to talk about is the components of mechanical ventilation. 
So first, I think it'd be helpful to kind of think about what mechanical ventilation actually is. It basically is the machine taking over the function of the patient's lungs. So what do lungs do? You take a deep breath in, bring oxygen in, and you take a breath out, you release the carbon dioxide, right? And that's basically the entire thing that mechanical ventilation is meant for, is to bring the oxygen into the patient and take the carbon dioxide out whenever the patient can't breathe for themselves. So there are different components to affect the and modify the oxygen intake and CO2 explosion. So we'll go ahead and talk about those one by one. So regarding oxygen modification, like the amount of oxygen the patient takes in, there are two main components that affect this. One is the fraction of inspired oxygen, or the FiO2, and two is the positive end expiratory pressure, or PEEP. So for the fraction of inspired oxygen, or FiO2, that is the percentage of oxygen that the patient actually breathes in. Because remember, room air only has about 21% oxygen, so you're not breathing that much uh, oxygen in. So the idea is if you increase the amount of oxygen molecules available to for the patient to breathe, you're going to increase the amount of available oxygen to participate in gas exchange. So more oxygen, more gas exchange, more oxygen delivery to the tissues. That's basically it. Okay, so the machine generally allows for 35 to 100% oxygen to be administered. Uh, but the important thing to note is that if you have, if you, if you minister high oxygen for too long, it increases the risk for things like bronchitis as well as free radical damage. And we, so we don't want to cause uh, unnecessary harm. So generally speaking, it's a good idea to try to keep it less than 50% FiO2. And I guess on most machines, they don't actually say percentage. For the FiO2, it's actually presented in uh, decimals. So when it's you, for example, if you're trying to go for 50% oxygen, it's going to show up as 0.5. So just keep that in mind when you're looking at these machines. So yeah, so that's FiO2. Next is PEEP, the positive end expiratory pressure. And as you recall from the respiratory physiology episode, the alveoli don't fully collapse at the end of expiration. There's always leftover air in the alveoli, so it keeps it open. Like, do you remember, like, due to the surfactant and that kind of stuff, the surface tension, it prevents the alveoli from completely collapsing. And it becomes important in mechanical ventilation because particularly when you're trying to help the patient take in more oxygen. And the reasoning behind this is when you apply pressure, it helps keep the alveoli open, or the term for it is that you're recruiting the alveoli, which allows more of it to participate in gas exchange. And therefore, by having more gas exchange, you're able to take in more oxygen. Just for reference, the physiologic PEEP is five centimeters of water, but the machine generally allows uh, between five to 20 centimeters of water. And lastly, you got to talk about uh, issues of having too much PEEP. So as you can imagine, you have more pressure in the thoracic cavity, right? 
that compresses the other structure in the, the, the cavity, which is the heart. So it compresses the heart, specifically the right atria, and that decreases the venous return. And from there, it decreases the cardiac output. And that eventually also decreases the blood pressure. So you got to be careful with applying too much PEEP because ultimately it affects the heart. Okay, so that was the two main components that affects the oxygen content for the, the patient. Now, the next one, next group of uh, components is going to deal with expelling CO2. So in order to understand this, we're going to take a step back and review a concept that we brought up in the respiratory physiology lecture episode, and that's minute ventilation or the other name for it is respiratory minute volume. And this is basically the volume of gas that's inhaled or exhaled uh, per minute. And the formula for this is the minute ventilation is equal to the tidal volume times the respiratory rate. And these two factors, the tidal volume and respiratory rate, those are the components that's going to help you expel the CO2. And we're going to talk about that in more detail right now. Okay, so for tidal volume, so tidal volume is the amount or the volume of air that moves in and out of the lungs in one respiratory cycle. So basically, the more air in also means the more air out, right? So the more air out means that you're breathing out more CO2, and that means you're expelling more of the CO2. So it makes sense that if you increase the tidal volume, you not only bring in more oxygen, but you also are allowing for more CO2 to be expelled into the environment. Okay, so the high yield note for tidal volume is that uh, every breath, there's about 150 cc's of anatomic dead space. So if you recall from the previous respiratory physiology episode, this dead space is the area that does not participate in gas exchange. So theoretically, if you want to expel more CO2, you it is more efficient to increase the tidal volume versus just the respiratory rate alone because you're basically overcoming the, the gas loss due to the dead space. So for example, if you only have a tidal volume of 200 cc's and you have the dead space of 150, then you're only actually getting 50 cc's of, of gas. So even if you increase the respiratory rate, it's not particularly efficient, as opposed to if you have a larger tidal volume, say, I don't know, 300 or something, and then for each breath, you subtract that anatomic death space, and you're left with 150 cc's. So yeah, that's why it's a little bit more efficient to increase the tidal volume versus increasing the respiratory rate alone to help with the, the gas exchange. All right, so that's tidal volume. And lastly is respiratory rate. And as the name implies, it's just the, the rate in which the, the patient will breathe in and out. An idea is the greater the respiratory rate, the more CO2 that's expelled. Okay, so we talked about the factors that affect oxygenation and the factors that affect the amount of carbon dioxide that's released. So to review, the components that affect oxygenation is the FiO2 and the PEEP, 
and the components that affects CO2 is tidal volume and respiratory rate. Okay, so the next topic is how to read the ventilator monitor. So it's going to be a little bit difficult to explain it without you seeing it. Uh, so I encourage you to take a look at the show notes, but we'll do our best as usual to des- describe it to you and hopefully it makes sense. So on the ventilator monitors, usually there's three curves that you'll see. So one is the pressure curve, two is the flow curve, and three is the volume. And we'll start by talking about the flow curve. And I think for each of these, it's a little bit easier to conceptualize it if you know the units for them. So for the flow curve, it's in liters per minute. And you can usually tell it's a flow curve because in the normal one, it looks like a bunch of rectangular boxes on a monitor. So flow, it means that it's measuring the movement of air in and out of the patient. So if you think about it as the velocity of the air going in in and out, that kind of gives you an idea of how to conceptualize the flow curve. And now I'm going to try to explain the or describe the, the curve to you. It first starts out at baseline of zero because there's no air moving in or out. But during inspiration, the flow goes into the patient. So the curve goes straight up vertically. Then it starts to hit a flat line horizontally and it stays constant for a certain period of time. And during exhalation, the air starts flowing out. So it goes down vertically, passing zero. And then it goes into the negative liters per minute because you're breathing air out. So it's going away. And after exhalation, the curve gradually goes back to zero liters per minute. So again, if you think flow as the velocity of air going in and out, that that will kind of uh, help you understand this concept. Second component is volume. And the unit for this is in liters. So when you're looking at the monitor, it kind of looks like a bunch of triangles uh, along a line. So it never goes below zero because you're not vacuuming the air out out of the patient's lungs, right? So uh, it never drops below zero. And basically, during inspiration, the the curve steadily increases in a linear slope-like fashion, uh, and it goes up until you hit the set volume. And from there, on exhalation, it decreases back to zero liters. And that's basically the, the volume. And lastly is the pressure curve. And this is measured in centimeters of water. And one thing to note about the pressure curve is that the baseline is not normally at zero uh, centimeters of water because remember, there's always leftover air in the alveoli due to the end expiratory pressure. So that's why it hovers above zero at baseline. However, during inhalation, it causes the pressure curve to dip down a bit towards and approaches zero because remember when you breathe, it actually causes a negative intrathoracic pressure and draws the air in, right? So you see it dip a little bit down. And from there, as the air comes in, there's a steady increase in the pressure until you get the full inhaled volume. and This is generally also kind of looks like a a linear slope until it hits the, the, the apex of it. And from there on exhalation, the pressure decreases as the air leaves the lungs 
and goes back to the original non-zero baseline. So yeah, the three things I usually see on ventilator monitors includes flow curves, volume, and pressure curves. Okay, now we're going to move on to the next topic. And it's still going along the lines of pressure, but now we're going to discuss where does it come from. So the answer to that, broadly speaking, is there's two main causes that causes uh, the pressure that you see on the curves. And if there's two main groups that I think makes it a little bit easier to understand is one, it's the dynamic flow of air into the lungs. And two, it's the pressure due to compliance. And that's more static. So during the dynamic phase, when the patient takes a breath in, you have air flow in and it increases the pressure due to the air movement. And it basically, it tries to overcome the resistance of the airway. So things like the ET tube and the components of the airway itself. So one way to think about it is when you're trying to blow air into balloon, so you recall that it takes a little bit extra pressure to inflate it, right? Because it has to overcome the different resistance of the, the, the latex, which is kind of like it wants to stay put, but you're trying to put more pressure into the balloon and then causing it to expand. So that's one way to think about the dynamic part of the pressure as the air trying to force its way in. The other component of, of the pressure, the static part, is due to the compliance of the lung. So after inspiration and the breath is holding, the pressure is due to the lungs trying to push back against that pressure. So going back to the balloon analogy, you can think of it as the pressure that exists when there's air in a balloon so that the balloon itself is trying to retract and the air inside it is pushing against the walls to keep it open. And assuming you're not actively trying to blow air into it, that's more or less a, a static kind of situation. So again, two main causes of the pressure, dynamic, which is air flowing in, and static, which is due to the compliance of the lung. Okay, so knowing about the two main causes of pressure in the lungs is very helpful for you to understand the next topic of peak and plateau pressure. So before we talk about the peak and plateau pressure, let's talk about something called the inspiratory hold maneuver. So basically you have the patient take a breath in, hold it a little bit, and then exhale. So as the patient takes a breath, there's a bunch of air flowing in and it increases the, the amount of pressure due to the dynamic inflow. And the peak or like the apex of the, the pressure is called the peak pressure. And that happens during inhalation. And as the patient proceeds to hold the breath, that peak decreases a little bit until it gets to a point in which it flatlines for a little bit. And it looks like a plateau. So therefore, it's the plateau pressure. And that's when the patient is holding that breath before exhalation. So we're going to talk about a little bit more of that uh, just coming up. So just want to give you a uh, context for what we're going to discuss. So inspiratory hold maneuver, inhalation causes that peak. And from there, it drops down a little bit and plateaus. And that's the plateau pressure. Okay, so peak pressure or P-peak or otherwise known as the peak inspiratory pressure, or PIP. And the way EMRA defines it, 
The peak pressure is the summation of pressure generated by the ventilator to overcome resistance of the ET tube and the airway slash lungs. So this becomes important because it is one of the components that helps you understand and determine the amount of airway resistance that's in the patient. So when you get the, the peak pressure and you subtract the pressure during the hold, during the breath hold, it gives you the the value for airway resistance. So scenarios with high airway resistance, and this is defined as that difference being greater than five millimeters of mercury, and is usually caused by different things like bronchospasms, secretions, mucus plugs, and occlusion of the ET tube. So basically, this pathology is essentially a blockage. So there's something blocking the airway. You're going to increase the amount of airway resistance because the ventilator is going to have to push in more pressure and more air to overcome the blockages. So that's why if you have a patient and the ventilator alarms is going off and then someone tells you that the there's an issue with the peak pressure, and that's going to clue you into thinking, yes, this is likely due to some sort of obstruction of the airway. And it helps you uh, narrow down your differentials based on this particular component. And lastly, generally speaking, you want to keep the peak pressure at less than 35 because you want to prevent any barrel trauma. Okay, and the next thing is the plateau pressure. And we kind of alluded to this already, but this is the pressure taken during the hold phase of the insertory hold maneuver. So again, when it goes uh, up to the, the peak and it goes down a little bit and it goes uh, horizontally a little bit, that looks like plateau and that's the plateau pressure. And the plateau pressure is related to the static alveolar distending pressure. And basically it corresponds to the lung compliance. And I think it's will be easier to understand this if I give you examples of high plateau pressure, which is like situations where there's decreased lung compliance. So these scenarios include a pneumothorax, pulmonary edema, ARDS, or the acute respiratory distress syndrome, and pneumonia. So the general idea behind this is that as you can imagine, these sort of disorders is a bunch of crap in the lungs, right? So if there's a bunch of crap in it, that decreases the compliance because there's more stuff to try to push away to uh, make room for air. So that makes it difficult for the lungs to expand. And by making it more difficult to expand, it increases the pressure when trying to add the air volume. So hopefully that uh, made a little bit sense to you. And for housekeeping purposes, you want to keep the plateau pressure at less than 30 to prevent barotrauma. Quick review. For the pressures, there's two main sources of pressure in the lungs. One is dynamic, the air flowing in. Two is the compliance of the lungs, so it's more static. The dynamic pressure is related to the peak pressure because that's the, uh, the air that's going in during inspiration. And plateau pressure is related to the static breath hold, and that's the due to the, and it's a measure of the, the compliance of the, the lungs. And again, I encourage you to take a look at the show notes. There's a graph in there, and hopefully that makes it a little bit easier if you're trying to give you a visual on uh, this topic. Okay, now we're 
finally getting to the meat and bones of this episode, and that's the modes of mechanical ventilation. So before we go into the specific modes, we're going to talk about the two main ventilation strategies, and that's volume control and pressure control. So first is volume control, and this is the most common mode for adults, especially in the ICU, and you basically control the volume, right? So you set a tidal volume, and whenever the patient gets a breath, they get that tidal volume. And since you are controlling just the tidal volume, the machine kind of compensates for every other variable. So pressure that is administered is going to be adjusted to that tidal volume that you set. So when you choose a tidal volume, the pressure will compensate accordingly. And the other side is pressure control. So this is generally good for small children, especially if you're concerned about barotrauma, as well as patients with neuromuscular diseases with intact lungs. So for this one, you set the pressure and then the tidal volume compensates accordingly. So the disadvantage of using pressure control is that the tidal volume could be variable. So if a patient has conditions in which there's already high amount of pressure, so for example, if the patient's obese, which, which their body habit is, is like compressing the lungs, or they're going through abdominal surgery in which the insufflation causes compression of the lungs, Choosing pressure control in those situations could mean that the patient could is not going to get adequate tidal volumes because, again, the tidal volume will, will adjust according to the pressure. So if the pressure is already super high, you're probably going to not be able to give that much of tidal volume. So that's just something to keep in mind. So and I guess uh, if any of you guys are photographers, the way to think about volume control and pressure control is the settings on a camera, like if you choose like an aperture priority mode or the shutter speed priority mode, like you choose one component of it and then your camera kind of adjusts accordingly to that set, uh, set value. So that's something to, so that's a good way to think about it if you are a photographer and you, you know about that stuff. So yeah, fun stuff. <laughs> Okay, now let's actually talk about the different ventilator settings. And we're going to first talk about the settings associated with volume. So first is the assist control, or AC, and another name for it is CMV. And this is when you choose a set volume, and then the pressure is going to be variable. For assist control, the patient is the one that triggers the breath. So basically... It senses when the so basically the machine senses when there is any negative airway pressure because that means that patient is trying to initiate a breath, and when the machine picks it up, it delivers the full tidal volume that you set. So technically, in assist control, the patient sets the ventilatory ventilatory rate, but you can put in a backup rate to deliver the tidal volume in case a patient uh, doesn't breathe and you set this for a certain amount of time. So if you take a look in the, the show notes, there's uh, a graph that kind of demonstrates the, the assist control mode. But let's quickly talk about the pros and cons to using AC. So the pros of assist control is that if the patient has a normal respiratory center, they can control their own rate. So that's very helpful, especially trying to avoid unnecessary ventilation. And 
The other pro is that it actually decreases the work of breathing compared to the the other mode, SIMV. So then it prevents the atrophy of the muscle uh, respiratory muscles. And cons to assist control is, as we discussed, it's the machine it detects when a patient is trying to breathe. So if the trigger is busted, then it could result in certain problems. So for example, if the the trigger is too sensitive, that it can cause hyperinflation because if it thinks that the patient's having to take a breath, it's going to automatically deliver the full tidal volume. But if it's not sensitive enough, it could cause asynchronous breathing. So the machine, it delivers a volume differently from when the patient is trying to, to take a breath themselves. And lastly, the other con is, as you can imagine, you're pumping the the lungs full of air so that increases the intrathoracic pressure which causes heart compression decrease venous return and ultimately decrease cardiac output so yeah that was assist control and the next volume setting we have is synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation or simv and this is a combination of spontaneous unsupported breathing with minimum backup rates. So basically the patient can not only determine when to breathe, but also de- uh, determines the, the volume they take in. And it's commonly used with pressure support, which we will uh, discuss shortly. And basically for SIMV, the, there is a window in which like if the patient does not try to take a breath, the, ve- the ventilator would uh, deliver the, the breath for them. So basically, if the patient's sedated and they're not trying to actively breathe, given that there's the same settings, the SIMV would look exactly like the, the S assist control mode, assuming the, the patient is sedated. So let's talk about the pros and cons of SIMV. So for the pros, because the patient basically sets the not only when to breathe, but how much it allows for SIMV allows for spontaneous breathing. So that's breathing with the diaphragm. And the advantage of doing this is that it improves the VQ mismatch if the, the patient has it. So because, and this is because the diaphragm distributes ventilation more efficiently and more evenly to dependent zones of the lung. So where the perfusion is the greatest. And that's in contrast to having straight up positive pressure ventilation, which does not do as great of a job distributing the ventilation to areas of the lungs that are perfused. And the other advantage of using SIMV is that it improves the venous return and cardiac output due to negative pressure breathing. Because remember, the patient is breathing on their own, kind of. So you're not applying extra intrathoracic pressure, which compresses the heart. And cons of using SIMV is that it actually increases the work of breathing for the patient, and there is an increased chance of asynchronous breathing uh, compared to assist control. So then now we talked about those, those two volume settings, so assist control and SIMV. So now the question becomes, like, which one should you use? Well, there's different scenarios that you can consider to choose one mode or the other. For assist control, it's good for when you're trying to decrease the work of breathing for a patient. 
So it's great for patients that have respiratory muscle weakness. And cases in which you should use SIMV is if you need some improvement in the VQ uh, and or cardiac output. Also, SIMV is a good choice if the patient is tachypnic because if the patient is breathing rapidly and they're on assist control, they're going to be getting a lot of volume. So if they're breathing quickly, assist control applies the complete full tidal volume that you set. So as you can imagine, you're constantly pumping them full of air, and that's not a great thing to do. So that's uh, if the patient's tachypnic, it's a good idea to switch them to SIMV. Okay, so that was uh, the ventilator settings for volume. And now we're going to move on to things that deal with pressure. So the first one is pressure support. And it's not exactly a straight up ventilator setting, but it basically helps the patient initiate a breath by making it a little bit easier to overcome the resistance that the patient experiences when trying to breathe in. So trying to overcome the resistance of the ET tube and the airway. So it kind of applies a little bit of pressure to overcome the resistance. So you think about it like like an enzyme, it's lowering the activation energy. That's basically what it's doing. Or another analogy I heard is like if pressure port is like the spotter at the gym. So the patient's doing the the lifting, but the pressure support is a spotter to kind of help alleviate the load as much as possible. So for the pressure support, you have a set amount of pressure that that, that you choose and the tidal volume uh, compensates accordingly. And for pressure support, it's actually a really good mode to use for weaning a patient off of a ventilator because it encourages uh, spontaneous breathing. And basically, you want to try to decrease the pressure level, the pressure support level until it hits about five. And that's like when the patient's able to actually uh, breathe for themselves. So the thing to keep in mind for before using this is the patient needs a stable ventilatory drive. And another thing to, to know about this is there's no true backup rate. So yeah, that's pressure support. And generally speaking, it's the it applies pressure to help the patient overcome the resistance of the airway to make it a little bit easier to breathe spontaneously. And it's a good mode to use if you're trying to wean them off of the ventilator. Okay, so then we basically talked about the the basic ventilator settings that you would come across, you will come across. And this is not meant to make you a complete masters of the vent, but hopefully it gives you an idea of what to expect when you're on a rotation or you're trying to learn what the ventilator does. So yeah, there's that. And now we're going to talk about the spontaneous breathing trial, SBT, or like the extubation criteria. So we kind of went over this in the post-op, or sorry, uh, we kind of went over this in the post-anesthesia care unit episode, but we'll go over this again here because it's pretty important to know and it shows up on board sometimes. So the criteria to wean the patient off is first, if there's improvement of the factors that led to ventilator usage to begin with. So the disease that you're treating, uh, hopefully that's been taken care of. And the next thing is signs of adequate oxygenation. And there's various parameters that go into this as well. So 
First is a PaO2 over FiO2 ratio is greater than or equal to 150 millimeters of mercury. For a PEEP, it's less than 8 centimeters of water. FiO2, the patient is on less than or equal to 50% or 0.5. And lastly, the pH is greater than or equal to 7.25. And the other criteria includes hemodynamic stability and spontaneous respiration. Factors that discouraged extubation for the patient is if the respiratory rate is greater than 35 breaths per minute, if the heart rate is greater than 140, and the systolic blood pressure is greater than 180 millimeters of mercury, and if the patient has any anxiety or diaphoresis. So basically, if the vitals are unstable, do not uh, extubate the patient. And lastly, there's a mnemonic to kind of help you memorize the different factors that contribute to patients that could be difficult to to wean off of a ventilator. And it's called weans not. So W-H-E-A-N-S, not, so N-O-T. And this stands for wheezing, heart disease, electrolyte imbalance, anxiety, aspiration alkalosis, neuromuscular weakness, sepsis, nutritional deficits, obesity or opioid overdose, and lastly, thyroid disease. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's a lot to memorize, but it is there, so you're familiar with it now. Okay, I figured this part would be pretty high yield for, for boards, and it kind of goes over like the concepts of mechanical ventilation as well. And we're going to use two main example topics, ARTS and uh, COPD. So for ARTS, the acute respiratory distress syndrome, if you recall from learning it in your class or uh, using your Anki deck, Quizlet deck, whatever, reading about it in first aid or <laughs> uh, whatever you're, you're learning, you're using to, to learn, to treat ARTS, you have patients on a high PEEP and low tidal volume. So sometimes it's, it's easy to just memorize and go, but for this, we're going to explain why this is the case. So for ARDS, simply speaking, there's a lot of crap in the lungs, right? So when there's a lot of crap, it decreases the compliance of the lung. So then it's not going to be able to expand and retract as efficiently, right? So that's why you have a high PEEP, which is around 12 to 14, to increase the alveoli recruitment to keep those alveoli open and resist the decreased compliance that wants to kind of collapse the lung. And the reason why you want to use a low tidal volume is because the continuous inflammation and deflation of alveoli of the alveoli causes inflammation. So then there was a study that looked at this and patients with like a high tidal volume had a greater uh, rate of mortality. So that's why you keep it at a low tidal volume. And generally speaking, it's about 68 milliliters per kilogram of ideal body weight. So that's ARTS. Remember, high PEEP and low tidal volume. Okay, so the next case is COPD. So remember, the mechanism for this is basically it's airway obstruction, hence the name. So because of the obstruction, the lungs do not empty well and the air is trapped inside the lungs so it increase and so it increases the total lung capacity 
So an issue when you're trying to ventilate COPD patients is something called breath stacking. And this occurs when you pump air into the, the patient's lungs, but do not completely let the, the air out of the lungs before initiating the next breath. Because as you recall, patients with COPD, they're able to breathe in okay, but it takes them a longer time to exhale it all out. So you can imagine this is problematic if you increase the respiratory rate and the tidal volume for these patients because you're basically just pumping them full of air without letting them to uh, release it. So it's just bound for like bad juju. Okay, so try to avoid that for COPD patients. So the solution for trying to manage a ventilation for these patients is to work on what's called the inspiration-expiration ratio or IE ratio. So normally speaking, the IE ratio at rest is one to two, so one inspiration to two exhalation time. And the inspiratory flow rate is about 60 liters per minute. But with obstructive lung disease, as we uh, talked about, it's easy for patients with COPD to breathe in, but a lot more difficult to breathe out. So then the the IE ratio for obstructive lung diseases is going to be around one to three. So the way you can manage these patients is to increase this inspiratory flow rate. So you basically get air in quickly, and then you allow the rest of the time to uh, for exhalation. So remember, like when you set the respiratory rate, it delivers the breath at like basically set amount of time, right? So basically, you're just adjusting the the amount of time for inspiration and exhalation within in between each breath, if that makes sense. Okay, and the last point about COPD patients is a little bit extra, but I thought it was super cool, is uh, hypercapnia secondary to oxygen supplement supplementation. And this one I kind of got off of a cardiac anesthesiologist and critical care uh, anesthesiologist named uh, Rishi Kumar. He has a really cool website and webs er, and uh, videos, podcasts. So definitely check him out. Highly recommend it. I have the link to his channel on my show notes and on my website. So the original way that I I was taught about why giving too much oxygen is bad for COPD patients is if you have the O2 sat- saturation above 92%, it could directly decrease the respiratory drive and that causes the air trapping in the patient and causes a buildup of CO2 because you're not breathing out the the carbon dioxide. But Dr. Kumar, he uh, made a good point that the actual mechanisms actually depend on two things. So one is a hypoxic pulmonary uh, vasoconstriction and two is the Haldane effect. And as we kind of discussed in the respiratory physiology episode, pulmonary blood vessels, they constrict in areas of low ventilation to basically divert resources to areas with good ventilation to where areas that actually are bringing in oxygen. So the idea is lungs in COPD COPD patients kind of adapt to the changing architecture because of the disease. So when you give a bunch of supplemental oxygen, the previously poor, poorly ventilated areas in the lungs 
steal the the blood flow from the the good parts, and that decreases the the gas exchange, and ultimately that causes a VQ mismatch. And secondly, for the Haldane effect, if you recall from the your step one setting, this is when oxygen displaces the hydrogen ions on hemoglobin if it reaches a certain concentration. So once the hydrogen ions are displaced, they enter the carbonic anhydrase equilibrium to bind to uh, bicarbonate. And when it does that, it ultimately causes shifts the equilibrium to create more CO2. So yeah, I thought that was uh, super fascinating. I'd never put that together with um, fun stuff. Hopefully that's really good uh, for you to think about it and prepare for your boards and whatnot. Okay, dokie. So we're going to try this out. We're going to do an end of episode review. So hopefully uh, when you listen to this, you retained things that I, I talked about. So that's the goal. <laughs> Like hopefully you learn something. So so I'm gonna to try to go for a divine intervention podcast sort of style for this. Okay. So first, what are the ventilator components that modify CO2? And the answer is respiratory rate and tidal volume. Next is what are the ventilator components that modify oxygen? And if you said FiO2 and PEEP, you did a good job. If not, that's okay. Next is what is peak pressure and how does it relate to determining airway resistance? So peak pressure is the maximum pressure that overcomes resistance of the ET tube, airway, and lungs during dynamic inflow of air. And it helps you determine the airway resistance because the difference between the Peak pressure and plateau pressure is gives you the airway resistance. And anything greater than five is indicative of uh, an airway problem. Next question is, what pathology is increased with peak pressure? So if you're thinking things that occlude the airway, so bronchospasms, secretions, mucus plugs, or occlusion of the ET tube, you are absolutely correct, and good job. Next, uh, what is plateau pressure? So plateau pressure is due to lung compliance during the hold phase of uh, inspiratory hold maneuver. And it's like a, a measure of lung compliance. Okay, so what pathology is associated with increased plateau pressure? And if you said things that reduce lung compliance, then you're uh, absolutely correct. And examples of this is pneumothorax, pulmonary edema, ARDS, and pneumonia. Next question is, which vent curve uses liters as a unit? The answer is volume. Next is, which vent curve uses liters per minute as the, the unit of measurement? And you said flow. That is correct. Next, which vent curve uses centimeters of water as a unit? The answer is pressure. Awesome. You're doing a great job. Next, uh, what are the main two types of ventilator strategies, broadly speaking? 
The two types of strategies include volume control and pressure control. So next is explain what assist control is. So assist control is the volume control mode. Uh, basically, when the patient initiates a breath, it gives a full tidal volume, or it can be given in a set time interval, and the pressure is going to be variable for assist control. Going off of that, what is SIMV? So SIMV is also a volume control mode in which the patient initiates a breath or they waits in a certain window before giving it. And another note is the patient determines the volume being uh, breathed in, and it could also be used with pressure support. And going off of SIMV, uh, what specific scenario is SIMV preferred over uh, assist control? And if you said scenarios in which you need to improve the VQ or cardiac output, that is correct. You're almost there. There's three more questions, so you're doing great. Uh, what is pressure support? Pressure support is providing extra pressure to overcome the resistance of things like the ET tube, and it basically just makes it easier for the patient to breathe spontaneously. What type of patients is pressure control good for? If you said small children and neuromuscular disease with normal lungs, then you're correct. And lastly, try to name uh, some criteria and parameters for exhibition. This one is a lot of stuff, so I'm just going to say um, some of them include improvement of factors that led to ventilator usage, measures of adequate oxygenation. So like uh, PaO2 over uh, FiO2 is greater than or equal to 150. Uh, PEEP is less than 8 centimeters water. FiO2 less than 50%. And pH of greater than 7.25. And lastly, uh, hemodynamic stability as well as spontaneous respiration. All right, so now we're completely done. Uh, this went longer than I expected, so I apologize for that. That's That seems to be the running theme in these recent episodes, but I hope it helps you kind of understand, at least get you started on learning mechanical ventilation so you're less confused as I was when I started my rotations, like, uh, you know, breath in, breath out. Huh. Okay, so instead of a joke, I'm going ha- to give you a fun fact today and that fact is a cow bison hybrid is actually called a beefalo apparently you're able to buy it in about 21 states so uh, yeah that's that's pretty fun all right thanks for listening to this episode i am scott the fourth year medical student and i look forward to seeing you in the next episode